0: We're all private people to some degree, but whenever we meet someone who wears their heart on their sleeve, we find it so refreshingly authentic. Each of us holds within us a lifetime of experiences that have shaped our identity, but we walk around as shells harboring these rich stories within us, not often letting them out. When Myesha came to us, we had never had a person ask us if they could share their story on our stage before it was usually the other way around. But in meeting Maisha, it was clear she understood the power of her story. As she recounted her experience to us, she told us, it's time. She was ready to share with the world that which she had been harboring. That which makes her who she is. That which makes her one of the strongest people we've ever had on our story hour stage. I'm Tai Chu, and this is Listen for a Change, a podcast amplifying the unique stories from the invisible among us. We find the voices you don't often hear, we empower them to heal around their experiences using storytelling, and we turn up the volume to open up all of our hearts and minds. This isn't just storytelling, this is an intervention to restore compassion. Here's the thing about Maisha, she's hilarious. And no, you won't get to hear much of that in today's episode because her story is pretty serious, but that's what makes her such an unforgettable spirit. What she went through is enough to leave some people broken. She speaks very frankly about the ongoing difficulties of her journey, specifically how it is different as a black woman in America. But her resiliency is something to be admired. We find many strong, courageous people who are able to transform their trauma into healing. It takes an even more courageous person to be able to share that vulnerably on our stage. Here now, we listen to Maisha's story as it was recorded at our February 2018 Story Hour.
1: lived and was told my whole life. We pray about it. The pastor will lay hands on us about it. And when I think about it, we sweep it under the rug. Subdued by religious dogma and communal shame, mental illness is a form of weakness. But you know when it started? It started in 1562 on the slave ship, the good ship, Jesus. Because it was then that we learned, as people of color, that the master can't see as weak. And you know what that has perpetuated into? It perpetuated into a generation of black and brown people living with post-traumatic slave syndrome, which has perpetuated generations of trauma, shamers, and mental health stigma silencers. Shamed. Who's gonna love me? Ooh. And so things were so dark in my life that I couldn't see myself a way out. So imagine yourself walking in the Carbacock car Tunnel and it's sealed. Wow. And all you can do is go from one end to the other. There's no air and you feel like the life is being sucked out of you. That is what my battle suicide felt like. There was no light. But eventually there was a glimmer. Her name was Jeanette, and I called Jeanette. I said, Jeanette, I I can't live anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Life's too hard. And all she knew how to do was to pray for me and call my mom. (laughs) So, she held on the phone until my mom showed up. But it it felt like it was all moving so fast. Like my mom showed up, then I was at the emergency room, and then I was like in this secluded space with like a glass, like with white walls and no TV, and I was like, okay, I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But black people, we don't get crazy. That's a white people thing, you know? the woman that she carried in her womb with nine months with three young children, and her face was in pain, like, are we going to get through this? Will her children recover? Hell, will she recover? Do I, as a former single mother, have to be a single mother yet again to three young children? Again, time was moving. 35 minutes later, and all I remember is sirens, and just speeding, and trying to get to this hospital. And we stopped. We go inside. It's white, like Who's seen Girl Interrupted? That movie with Angelina Jolie. Like <laughs> the doors, like that's a real thing, you guys. Like, was I was like, all right. How many other black folks went through this? It's all good. So you know, I got there. They took me off the stretcher, put me in the wheelchair, and then the lady was like, "Oh, we need to have you voluntarily sign yourself in." What? I was so confused because isn't that why the other hospital sent me here? Why do I have to sign in? So, I need to get help because I need to get home and see my kids. So I signed in. But guess what happened next? They said, here's some anxiety medication. It's going to help you take the edge off. Black, I'm black, I don't take any medication.
0: Only medication black and brown
1: people take is for high cholesterol, diabetes, <laughs> <laughs> and uh I don't know, think of something else. That's the only medication I grew up knowing about. Seriously. <laughs> so, you know, I go to this. I'm in this mental health institution, you guys, and I can laugh about it now. Um, and the next morning, I was awake with my roommate. She was a spunky old white lady, about 65 four grandkids. You know, this was in DeKalb, Illinois, too. So all she talked about was the country and her grandkids and her farm and her husband, and I was like, okay, cool. And she was like, yeah, I've been in this place for the last 15 years, out. Aww. I was like, oh hell no, it's going to be me, not today's <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it, was, it was in that moment that I was like, okay, I must be here for a reason. So from that interaction, I walk in the, lobby, in the lobby, and guess what the first thing I saw was? It was a Bible. And the one thing I know growing up in the church and being a strong-willed black woman, that that Bible meant that there was a higher calling for my life oh. and this experience was going to be used to bless somebody. Nice. Yes! Real talk! And I live to that truth this day, that seeing that Bible was God, the universe, Buddha, whatever you believe in. Seeing that holy book was a sign that, baby girl, it's going to be all right, and I'm going to use you, and you're going to help somebody. Yeah. So, it's cool. The Bible became my best friend. Like, oh, I was like, walking around this hospital with a Bible and a journal and just writing every day. Like, I would find a scripture and be like, how does that scripture apply to me being in a mental health hospital? And I would it down. So then my pastors came. Pastor Joe came and I said, you know, Pastor Joe, and I was high on medication, so let's not forget, but I remember <laughs> these conversations. <laughs> mental illness, I wouldn't be here today. Okay. Well, we all on that Bible, so it was meant for me to be there. Woo. But I said, one day I'm going to start something for people of color to talk about their mental illness. Yeah. I said that in the mental health institution. He was like, yeah, you're right, but we're going to support you. And I'm like, you bet your good Lord you are. <laughs> so, you know, when you're in the mental health hospital, You have to go to what's called groups. So people who've been there like multiple times told me like, okay, the way to get out is to go to the groups, take medication, see the doctor, just pretend like everything is okay. And I'm like, okay. So I'm thinking like day one, I'm going to the groups, I'm showing out, yeah, I'm in this group. Day two. All right. Calling my mom, calling my kids. My kids thought I was on vacation. Shout out to my mom who told them I was on vacation. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'm having a great time. No, I wasn't that hospital. Food was nasty. Um, but just, so day three gets here and I'm just like, right, I'm want to go home. So what's the plan? The plan was to see the doctor, see the psychiatrist. But before I talked to the psychiatrist, I talked to my Uncle Brian. My Uncle Brian is a black man from Oakland, California, who has a nonprofit called Black Men Speak. Get it? Brown sisters speak, black men speak. Yeah. <laughs> and this organization empowers men of color to talk about their mental illness and he said, my no matter what that diagnosis is, that diagnosis is not a condition does not define your destiny. He comes wow. So I saw the doctor the next day after I got my empowerment speech from Uncle Brian. And the doctor was listening to my story, and he was like, sounds like you have postpartum depression and psychosis with suicidal ideation with a plan. Oh, and you're bipolar. Wait, what? So I got all this like in, in like 45 minutes. For, based on what he saw at the hospital, my experience, in 45 minutes, that was my diagnosis. Okay, cool. I called my mom. I was pissed. I said, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what this is, mom, and what is this? So my mom, and, you know, I was in a place where I couldn't go to Google and search. I couldn't print any documents. I, all I could do was ask the nurses, can you print me up some stuff so I can read about it? You know, because I thought the pathway to healing would be fast right. because bipolar is going Straight away. So my mom, you know, talked me through it. She reminded me what Uncle Brian said, the diagnosis doesn't define your outcome. It's just, it's a diagnosis, not a death sentence. And so, you know, I'm still in my head like, this is a white people disease, um, and I'm going to be healed from it. And so 48 hours later, I was released, but that was after a seven-day stay in the mental health institution. So I spent days and weeks questioning what was normal. Like, for weeks it felt like everybody around me who was in church and who was in my life, they were judging me because they knew I was in a mental health institution and I was crazy. Um, I was the white elephant in the room for years. I spent hours googling cures, trying to juice, teaching Zumba, doing Zumba, because I knew Health and wellness could be a pathway, but I didn't really fully believe it. <sighs> and, you know, all lies were on me, so I had to try to fight for my respect. It still didn't work. So, I was out of the hospital about three months later. That suicidal feeling came back, that darkness, that tunnel, not being able to breathe in the air. My brother called me and said, what are you doing, my H? I I said, I'm looking at this bottle of pills, and I'm about to take them all. He was like, oh, I'm on my way to visit you. What's your address? You know, I fell for it because the sheriff showed up. (laughs) Sheriff showed up, what are you doing? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Your brother called and he said that uh, you weren't feeling too well. And I just told the truth. He said, you know, I'm supposed to take your kids and send you back to the hospital. But there's something about you and I just can't do it. Wow. So give me the pills. And promise me you won't do this again. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm so serious. That's why I said that Bible. See, it's all connected now. Because look where I am today. But anyway, I'll get to that. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> so, you know, my mom showed up again. Shout out to my mom always showing up. Yeah. And uh mama. I thought I was doing good. Four months later, comes back. I'm in the bed, I can't get up. I can't eat, I had a job, I was like, <laughs> and She said, you got two choices. You're gonna give me your kids, and go do whatever you want with your life, figure yourself out, <clears throat> or you need to go figure yourself out and send for your kids. Okay, I was a teacher's assistant, and I said, all right, this is my last $285. I'm gonna buy me a train ticket to California, because that was the last place I was truly happy, Woo. in California. Okay. I called my cousins Simone and Wes. I said, Hey, this is my action plan. This is what I'm going through. They're like, Come on. They didn't even really care to be honest with you. They just wanted to help me. Got on the train with $5 in my pocket, real talk, one and a half days worth of snacks, and I went from Naperville, Illinois to Emoryville, California. When I got here, Seven days later, I had a full-time job. My kids were here three weeks later with my mom. Two months later, we had our own apartment, and we've been in the same apartment for five years. Wow! going through that experience in that mental health institution propelled me to where I am today. I was able to come to California, give my children their diagnoses, two with high-functioning autism, one with ADHD and sensory processing disorder. So I have no choice but to be a thriving single mompreneur because I need therapy, my kids need mm. I started attending University at Holy Name University and my professor said, this is your social entrepreneurship class, create something. I said, okay. I was like, oh, I was in the mental health institution. I'm going to create something for women of color because when you can yes. heal the woman, yes. you can heal the man and you can heal the family and break the barriers yeah. of generational trauma in the black and brown, not just black, black and brown communities. So I said, okay, my project is called Brown Sisters Speak. We are a mental health empowerment and peer support organization for women of color. Wow. This was two years ago. Didn't do nothing. I was just on YouTube trying to be cute. <laughs> <laughs> but in partnership with Sidewalk Talk and Resilient Wellness and other community sponsors, we hold monthly brunches in Oakland, California to empower women of color to speak their truth and to really break the ice because you got to move slowly with us the black and brown community to gain trust. Mm -hmm. You gotta move slow. But just moving slow allows us to break the stigma and speak our truth. And so I say, I wanna end here, I wanna end with this. Be an ally. Help us create opportunities for women of color, men of color, to speak our truth. Like Ty, have us up here speaking our truth. Reach out to your local legislation and say, hey, that's a cute campaign. I don't see any black and brown faces. I do it on Facebook all the time. I see a Facebook ad and I say, that's a cute ad, but I don't see any black families. That's a cute ad.
0: I walked up to a small, unassuming church in an industrial part of East Oakland. This is actually where Mayisha works. She greeted me at the door and gave me a quick tour of the historic building. The kind of building that you might not notice driving by, but is quite stunning once you stop and look at the details. Inside this space was a thriving community center. Wow. Yeah. Have like a full on kitchen here. Yeah. I sat down with Mayisha and got to learn the significance of this community and the impact sharing her story with us has had on her life. I wanted to ask you, do you, do you, believe, do you believe in angels?
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, you have to, there's no way that you're in that much pain and despair that there is not an angel with you or among you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Who are your angels?
1: Jeanette. That night, Jeanette, Jeanette's still my angel. I can still call her um, my children. I always believe that children are the closest thing to God. But I think sometimes, depending on how we grew up, we never let our children's voices speak life into us. Mm-hmm. So I believe my children are angels. Um, and also, what's interesting is I had three miscarriages earlier in life. Mm-hmm. And then I was blessed with three children. Wow. So, and the way my last two were born, so I had... One in two thousand and one, and then in two thousand and three, and then I lost one in two thousand and four. So that was like eighteen months apart. Wow. And my last two children are eighteen months apart, which those are angels. Like I feel what? like they're like their older three siblings are in heaven, but they're definitely angels. Wow. They're definitely angels, my children, Jeanette, my mom.
0: Tell me a little bit more about Jeanette. So I mean, she makes a brief appearance in your Jeanette story.
1: If I could tell my whole life story, she makes a lot of appearances. I met Jeanette in 2005, when I moved to DeKalb, Illinois, uh, when I went to New Hope Missionary Baptist Church. That's my home church, Mm -hmm. always. She was the first person who spoke to me. And she just was like, you're a single mom, I'm a single mom. I wasn't even a mom yet. She was just like, I see you, let me know what you need. How can I support you? I met Jeanette when I was pregnant with my son, Micah, who's almost 14. So she's, she's actually Micah's godmother. Um, Mm. and, yeah, every pregnancy she was there.
0: She sounds amazing.
1: She's amazing.
0: Does she? live near
1: she she lives in illinois okay so she's still my angel you know i can call her and jeanette and she's like okay remember i'm watching you you're doing great you're doing fine it's okay you know she's always my my best advocate my best like supporter michael was born she was there postpartum depression she was there no matter what i was doing my life she's always watching me like checking in on me checking in my mom she's like family She's my angel, definitely Jeanette.
0: Yeah. Take me back to that that one night, yeah that you spoke about in your story. and when you called Jeanette, hmm was she the first person that came to mind? Yeah,
1: called Jeanette. Mm-hmm. like laying there in the bed, like, "Oh my God, oh my God, I'm gonna I, I need to talk to somebody." It was like, just I called Jeanette. And I called her, and she answered, and she was like, what's wrong, Mai? Like, I can hear it. What's going on? I was just like, I'm ready to go. She was like, what? I'm ready to die. She's like, oh, we, nope, mm-mm, nope. And she just started praying. She was like, talk to me. And I was just, I, I can't do this anymore. I was not born to be a single mom. I'm a statistic. Y'all can take better care of them than I can. They don't need me. No, nope. she just kept saying, we're not doing this. No, 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 no. She just kept praying. She's like, we're not dying today. Not on my watch. She just kept praying. And she was just like, you know, in black cultures, you know, the devil is a liar. Not today, Satan. Hold on. Let me get my... And then she got the other phone and called my mom. Oof. And, like, she's praying with me. Like, yeah, you need to go get my... She's I can't get there. So she's it. double phoning. <laughs> she's like, breathe. Praying for me. Breathe. I'm going to talk to you till your mom gets there. My mom came. My mom was just like... Trying, I, guess, I, like, I can still see her like, come on, let's go, mm-hmm. let's go to the hospital, trying to stay strong, come like uh I think, I even think Jeanette came to stay with the kids, like, I don't, now I'm thinking, I'm like, what happened to my kids, because my mom was with me, so where were the kids, I think they were with Jeanette, or my brother, I don't remember where my kids were, mm-hmm. in this part of my story, I'm just thinking about it now, mm-hmm. but yeah, Jeanette was just, she's double phoning, praying with me, just listening to me, She never once said, um, don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. She never once invalidated me, Mm -hmm. um, during that experience. But she definitely prayed with me, held me, let me talk, let me vent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank God for people like Jeanette.
1: Thank God for angels like Jeanette. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um I wanted to ask you with, with the refusal to show any signs of weakness or struggle mm-hmm. in the black community,
1: yeah, you talked
0: a little bit about that. Uh, was it hard to let others in and share the details of your mental health with people close to you?
1: Um, yes and no. Mm. Um, no, because my uncle was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, I think four years before I had a diagnosis. Um, And I had been going to therapy on and off. So i would kind of been talking to some friends about it, talking about depression. Um, So my uncle, Brian, was one of the first people I called. And he said, whatever they tell you, that diagnosis doesn't define you. And you're going to do something with this experience. like." That was his, his take on it. So I knew I could talk to Uncle Brian. Um, my mom's older brother, not the oldest, Tom came. My Uncle Tom came mm-hmm. um, and his wife. And then I found out that she had the same postpartum depression, um, was taking medication and antidepressant, and that everything was going to be okay. So I knew one side of my family would totally understand it. Um, the other side would not. So there was, like, this fear of talking about it because um, I had already felt, just growing up, with my family, like, different. Um, because I was kind of selectively mute um, as a child. Mm. Um, and my kids, and with their diagnoses, my mom would even speak to this and say that I was, I'm probably autistic. Um, but back then, she didn't know. You know, she had to work. She was a single mom, and mm-hmm. that didn't matter.
0: Um, Were you an only child?
1: No, I had a sibling when I was uh, 10. My mom had another baby. Okay. Um, but I was the only child for 10 years. Yeah. Um, I was very quiet, didn't speak much, just like my kids, just like my kids were, just like both of my kids.
0: Do you remember back on that time?
1: Yeah, I remember back, like, I would be, like, seeing the other kids talk and I would hear words in my head, but I couldn't get them out. So it was expressive mm-hmm. communication, mm-hmm. um, and it was very, yeah, head nodding and struggling. you know, I'm shrugging a lot. Um, once I got to like middle school though, in like fifth grade, when we came to California again, because we moved a lot when I was younger, um, mm-hmm. and I met my first best friend, Janine Lee, uh, Japanese and black, I started talking. I would say I started, it's reminded me of my son now who's in middle school, because it's similar to him. Once I hit like 12, I started talking more, um, only to friends, close friends, but still not to family. So my cousin, she's here. Simone, um, they would talk to me, and I'd, it's like, selective mutism. I don't know what it was. I would just shut down. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say much, and they would even be like, "Why are you so quiet?" And I, that's always my response. You shrug. Shrug. I don't know, but I would hear what I would want to say to them in my head, but it would not come out. Um, what did so, What did your your mom think of that? She, she just thought I was shy. Okay. So everybody in my family just thought I was shy. Okay. That Maisha's just shy. That so they never just, got you to It was never like, or? well, you know, back then, black black families didn't know about this. Mm-hmm. So back then, like, if you had relabeled something, like, you just get on the special bus. My mom said there was a time that something happened with her when she was younger. I don't know the story, but they told my grandmother she'd have to take the special bus. And my mom was like, no, mm-mm i figured figure it out. So yeah. there is like this history of some sort of mental illness or autism or sensory stuff in my family. Um, but I believe that I am the first generation to um, do something about it and speak openly about it. Do
0: You think it's, it's because of the
1: stigma? I think it's because of the stigma. And I also think it's because I've seen the power of my story. Yeah. And how me sharing it with one person inspires them to get help mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. even if they still don't tell their family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've experienced, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, in your mental health advocacy efforts, mm-hmm. cause you do a lot of that stuff. Uh, it sounds like both for your children and yes. for yourself mm-hmm. and, for and, women, and for other women and for other women. Absolutely. Um, what mindset or approaches yielded, um, the most success in breaking the stigma around mental health issues, especially in the black and brown community.
1: We're still breaking the stigma, Ty. Yeah, it sounds like like there's a lot of resistance. So what I, it's still, like, I have, I hold space, I hold circle. Folks don't show up. Mm. Women don't show up. And I just keep pushing forward. And for what it takes for me to get to the mental health piece is uh, experiences. So if I curate an experience around self-care or a curator experience around women's empowerment, that's the way that I can have all women of color in a room to then end it talking about mental health and trying to pull them into deeper circle and deeper mm-hmm. connection. Um, because our minds have been trained. Like, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about emotions. Right. We don't talk about feelings. We just keep going.
0: Can you give me an example of one of those experiences?
1: So, yeah. Um, I So, for 12 weeks here at OCC, I had a brown sister circle. No one came to. But when I had events with speakers, like I did one on Speaker Truth, Daisy did one on um, sexual trauma, mm-hmm. um, we are getting ready to do one in a couple weeks, a self-care thing, people register for those things. So for me, that was data that said, I have to, black women need experience. Black and brown women need experiences because we are not trained to be in touch with that side of ourselves, but we do want experiences because we know the experiences make us feel good. And the experience, and since it's like a drug, right? It's like a dope of uh, dopamine. Um, it makes us feel good to be in community, to be with each other to have fun. And I think once we do more of those experiences, we can get down to an emotional level. Yeah. and we can get down to speak our truth and like really talk openly about mental health. That's what's actually missing. Like we can hand out the flyers and the crisis text lines, but it's the community part that makes mm-hmm. the most difference.
0: You know it sounds like with this faith community, you have a lot of support, you have mm-hmm. a lot of resources and you have people coming out. You know, for certain things. But, you know, it it sounds like the taboo stuff still is there. And I wonder...
1: Yeah. It's still... Like, do you still encounter that? In the black and brown communities? Oh, absolutely. Like, um grew up in the black church. And so, you know, you would never say to your pastor, I'm depressed and I need someone to talk to except at my home church, New Hope Missionary Baptist Church in DeKalb. Plug for anyone who's in Illinois listening. Um Yeah, we don't talk about depression. Depression is a spirit. Like, any mental illness is a spirit. It is the spirit of the devil. And we're going to be casted out and prayed over and be okay. Yeah. And that is so harmful. Um, everything's swept under the rug in terms of community. We learned to, um, drugs, turn to drugs. And, and music. And that's kind of been our bomb. But not, that's the surface level. We don't, we don't go deep. Mm-hmm. We don't go deep. Um.
0: So knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. so the incident that you spoke about in your story, remind us when that happened. How many years uh, ago was that?
1: Six. It'd be seven years in November. Wow. And
0: just congratulations, and also Thanks. we're so happy to have, you know, you continuing to to advocate and to fight for the work that you do from your own experiences. But um, I'm wondering, knowing what you know now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What would you want to go back and tell Maisha of six, seven years ago when you were at your lowest, darkest point?
1: That this is for something greater that you will never understand. You don't see it right now. Keep going. Like, if I saw Maisha who picked up the Bible, I'd be like, you're absolutely right. But Maisha that was laying in the bed, it's. I'd probably just whisper, just hold on. Just just hold on. Keep keep fighting. Your your children need you. Because no one would have been able to. They would have had to deal with the trauma that I had to deal with. So I tell myself to hold on. Because your kids need you to help break the cycle. And to make sure that they get the services that they need to thrive so that they, as they get older and they have partners and children, their children can have what they need to thrive. Your children need to learn from you because no one else can, no one else can do it. Yeah. No one else can do it.
0: And your kids are still pretty young. Have you? Yeah,
1: 13, 8, and 6.
0: Have you talked about any of this with them? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. My oldest one, he totally understands it. Um, he's been suicidal before, um, and I share my story with him. And I think him hearing my story and me normalizing the conversation is super helpful. I wrote a book about my experience. He's read it. Um, he's like, I need you to like. He think he's my marketing manager, so he's like, he thinks he is, and he, <laughs> he tries to coach me. I need you to sell these books on Facebook, Mom. That can change somebody's life, right? Wow. So, yeah, my my middle son, not really, because he has ADHD mm-hmm. and some emotions. She's very emotional and he's actually dealing with his own blackness at eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, is it okay for him to be black? Mm. Uh, but my daughter, not yet. I don't think my daughter, my daughter probably won't understand process till she's probably in her teens. Um, just because some of her emotional delays. She's just not ready yet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One day they will be ready. They will, to, and they they might hear your story mm-hmm. that was recorded with yeah. us. What do you want them to know?
1: That no matter how low you go, that you can always pick up the pieces and go high again. But life is, life is, not constant. So the ups and downs are normal, and it's okay. Just always remember that if you at your lowest ask for help and support each other in your need for help don't forget about each other i think that's what i want them to know don't expect life to be constant the ups and downs are normal and anyone who tells you anything different you need to question their logic and keep asking questions like i've taught you yeah
0: I'm listening, and I'm, I, I'm absorbing these <laughs> words. I'm not your kid. And I'm like, we could all use that advice. Yeah. Um, so we, I, I ask every um, every storyteller this question. Aside from the story that you told on our stage, mm-hmm. what is your untold story? What is that story that you don't share with people on a day-to-day basis, but you walk around Mm -hmm. with, and it defines your identity, and Mm -hmm. you may be afraid of how it's received, or there just might not be a space to tell most people on a day-to-day basis. What is that story of your life?
1: Oh, man. Um, probably... Hmm. That my father was my abuser. And that because I talked to his family about it, I am now the black sheep in his family. My father uh, played Russian roulette with me. (sighs) that my father was absent from my life for 17 years Um, and that um, 17 years was the first part of my life where like I did not know how to relate to men what's a man what do you need a man for like I was a very angry woman, angry child because my father wasn't there. Um, And then to meet the first man who's supposed to teach you how a man is to love you and be abused by him in a lot of ways that I'm not ready to disclose yet, it's very hard. Um, And yeah, my father was my first abuser. My first of um, two. So my father and then someone else. But it set me up for a cycle and a pattern of accepting men who were projects or partners because I've had partners who were projects um, where I would have to fix them, like where I'd have to like, you know, it just set me up for for failure, I think. Um, So yeah, it's part of my story. My father was my abuser and um, leading me to raise boys who are loving and nurturing and have amazing sons and talking to my son openly and telling my son you know my father was my abuser and so when I say stop you have to stop the first time when any woman or partner tells you to stop you have to stop Um, so that story of my father and how it's led me to be a better mother to boys to say if I respond in this way this is what you can say to me to bring me back to reality like, you can say, Mom, I think you're being, he says, um, you're being sexist right now. You're treating my sister different than me. And because
0: he's 13, he's
1: thirteen. the way wow. I grew up, I want my kids to say these things to me so that I, I just, I don't know, I'm a different kind of parent. I want them to call me out, and I love it. So my abuse of my father and the pain from that um, has helped me to raise really compassionate, empathic and intuitive boys. Amazing, so yeah, that story.
0: and you work with a lot of women in in creating spaces to share mm-hmm. these types
1: of stories, yeah yeah and in this summer, I'll be doing girl circles mm-hmm. with the organization in Oakland for six weeks. yeah, um, so I have a couple of circles with girls to share their stories yeah. um, and write a book, so yeah,
0: and tell me a little bit more. Um, so we asked all of our yeah. our storytellers to choose an, an organization to represent, mm-hmm. and you chose one very near and dear to your heart, mm-hmm. and we've already spoken a little bit about it, but um, tell me a little bit about Brown Sisters Speak.
1: Yeah, so Brown Sisters Speak was birthed from my story. <laughs> uh, we're a mental health empowerment and peer support organization for women and girls of color now. Um, we hold monthly sister circles. Um, and bi-monthly empowerment events for women. Um, and this summer, we're partnering with Urban Mentors to offer a circle for girls um, so that girls have a safe space to connect, build community, and share their stories.
0: And what are you trying to end?
1: We are trying to end the, generation, the, the generational cycle of suffering and silence um, and empowering women to reach out for help. We're trying to end superhero syndrome for adult women, mm. but for younger girls, just give them space to share their stories and feel empowered. It's, it's real. It's incredible. Yeah, and I. Um, and it's such important work. I get it. I get a lot of slack though, because I'm like, well, "Why is it Black women speak?" So I'm like, "I choose chose the word brown because <laughs> I wanted basically to say anybody who's not white." So. So it's like black and brown. It's actually like brown. It probably should be like women of color speak or something, but. I, don't know. I mean, this has a nice ring to it. It just has a nice <laughs> ring to sister it, speak. and like you know, you could do a lot with it branding wise, and. You know. I don't cut you any slack. If I ever sell it, then, you know, they could change it, but I won't. I think it's catchy as well. I think it's just super catchy. (laughs) B.S.S.
0: (laughs) It's almost like B.T.S. Oh, my God. (laughs) There it
1: is.
0: (laughs) Army fan. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You are are an incredible force in this world. And I'm so moved every time. I feel like I want to have... More of these sessions, just like, I learned so much. Thank you. We learned so much we learned from so you. learned I'm
1: going to hear your, more of your story. Oh,
0: my gosh. Well, you heard some of it I this past year. I heard some in December. Yeah. So, I, I think I really connect with you because I think we yeah. come from similar places. Such different walks of life on the surface, right? Like right. Like, we're different gender, different race, different, you know, all sorts of things. But we both come from places um of not talking about certain things yep and then creating
1: spaces spaces where
0: people can do that
1: yeah. other people can and i think and i admire like, that in
0: you so much
1: i love that about you too that's our common humanity it as what we talk about in mindfulness
0: and i don't think that we could ever have enough of these spaces no i think um you know, especially the work that you're doing in this community. It, mm-hmm. It's okay to say that you're in East Oakland. I'm in East Oakland. You're in yes, East Oakland, and um, this is this is such a community. This is a community that needs this so much. Yeah,
1: thank you. So,
0: I love it. Keep doing, keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ty Of course. All right.
0: That was that was great. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, be sure to check out listenchange.org to find our next in-person story hour and to learn about our storytelling workshops. And please, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our production team for this episode is Tunde Demurin and Isaac Silk. I'm Tai Chu, and remember, a story untold is simply a thought.